Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The podcast where three friends make really eerie dolphin noises at each other. Lose our fucking boards. <laughs> no, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Oh, oh yeah, we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. And my accent might be really ripe. Because my mom has been visiting oh. me for five oh. days. You've been in some, it's like immersion therapy. It's like, oh, a yeah. sound, it's like a sound bath. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> husband was like, wow. Okay. I, I have to go. <laughs> I get it bad just getting off the phone with your mom. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And then she said she had the audacity to be like, Oh, and I was chatting with the gal next to me on the flight here and blah, blah, blah. And she's from Chicago. And she said that she doesn't think I have a Minnesota accent at all. No, she just wanted you to leave her alone. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, you sure don't. Okay, put my headphones in, babe. She just wanted to end the conversation. The conversation. (laughs) I I could picture it so clearly. Uh Uh-huh, you don't have an accent. Not even a lick of an accent if I have my noise canceling headphones on yeah and i'm napping (laughs) i don't hear an accent or a voice (laughs) i don't hear anything oh my god anyway who are you oh fuck it i'm kenyan (laughs) i'm lucy If you can't tell, we're recording this in that weird time warp week in between Christmas and New Year's. Everything hurts. I don't know what day it is. I'm exhausted for no reason. I slept until 11 (laughs) o'clock. I spent an entire day this week just doing a puzzle. Yes, you did. And you got it done. And it looks really cute. It does look great. Are you going to glue it and hang it on your wall? No, I'll give it a a few more days and then I'll pack her up. Okay. Okay, well, this week we have a very special fan pick brought to you by our fan picker, Brooke Borman. Oh, Babylon Brooke Borman. Mm -hmm. Nothing Nothing. Borman about you. Mm -hmm. You beat me to it. I snatched that right out of your mouth, I felt. (laughs) Yeah, you did. You really did. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry. It's fine. So Brooke has selected the topic of fucked up fandom. I'm yes. so excited for my case that mm-hmm. only Kenyon will like. Ooh, <laughs> it's, right. it's literally a gift specifically to you. Oh my God, I love it. Is it about Outlander? No. Is it about me? No. <laughs> <laughs> Your third favorite thing below Outlander and you. Mm, okay, my dog. Mm. Okay, we'll get we'll get to it. Fourth okay. favorite. <laughs> oh, I mean my husband or whatever. <laughs> oh no, you shouldn't say no. eighth. Favorite. This definitely <laughs> is above your husband in terms of your a few of your favorite things. Ooh, okay, okay. All right, well, first, let's just booze it up because, again, week after Christmas and before New Year's. I need it. 
What, Amanda, what's our wine crime pairing for fucked up fandom? Well, it feels really apropos because it's, I need it like some sort of medicine or tonic, which probably makes me sound like I have a serious problem. But you know what? <laughs> that's the next, live that's in like next year issue. The 18th century. You have yeah. to go to the apothecary. Yes. So we are drinking Apathic Infernal. Oh, okay. look at that. I do love the Apothic brand wines. You mm-hmm. can get them Good everywhere that wine is sold. Yep, the price is great. They usually clock in around 10 bucks, and they're like beautiful, robust reds, and then they do these really cool sort of special editions like this one, and I will read you a little blurb about this wine, but first, Brooke wanted to give their reasoning behind this pairing. Okay. My reasoning, quote, my reasoning behind this, at its core, Renaissance art is pretty much just fan creations based on the Bible or mythology. True. Canon Jesus is much better than fanon Jesus, but I digress. (laughs) Dante's Divine Comedy can be seen as a self-insert Mary Sue fanfic where Dante gets to meet his favorite poet, find his long-lost love, all while exploring this AU of someplace mentioned a handful of times in the Bible. Love it. I love it. I love I, it too. And that kind of circles to my case. So I'm pumped I about feel that. like I might need to start writing bad fanfic entirely just for Honey. myself. Yeah. You'd not make, to ever share. No, you'd make so much money. You have to just do it. <laughs> I don't know what you're fucking waiting for. That might be my <laughs> next little weird hobby. Yes. That hobby fever dream that lasts for three months and then I never touch it again. Exactly. I support this. Like your vagina watercolor. Vagina art. Scottish Gaelic. Scottish Gaelic, which I need to get back into, but I have not touched in months. And (laughs) what was the other one? I don't know. Oh, pencil drawings of dictators wearing eye patches. Oh, right. How could we forget? I did forget about that one. Wow. How? Wow. 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 So the Apothic Inferno, the website and label read as such. With the depth of a red blend and a fiery bite from whiskey barrel aging. Hello. Mm. I love when winemakers do fun stuff like this. Apothic Inferno is a red wine with a whiskey soul. Paying tribute to a time-honored craft, this wine has been aged for 60 days in whiskey barrels, creating bold notes of red and dark fruit with layers of maple and spice. Apothic Inferno delivers a rich red blend with curious, intense taste. Apothic Inferno is first oak aged for two to four months, so it's made like a regular wine. I think the base of this wine is Kabsov. Mm-hmm. But it is a red blend, so there's likely some other fun, robust, you know, red varietals in there. But the bottle shape would also suggest that it's primarily cab, and a lot of the apothic blends are cabs. So they do that, then they oak age that that red blend, and then they age it for an additional 60 days in whiskey barrels to give a unique character to this special red blend. Cute. Yeah, it's smooth, it's rich, and it offers notes of ripe red and dark fruit like blackberry and plum that combine with layers of maple, vanilla, and charred spice on the lang clean finish. That sounds delicious and wintry and robust. She's gorge. Mm -hmm. And you can also make, like, wine cocktails kind of with it. They say that you could literally, this would make a really good mulled wine where you you add, even make, like, a little whiskey and some cinnamon sticks. Mm -hmm. It's not crazy high in ABV. It's 15.9%. So, like, that is a a lot. That's a lot of alcohol. But it's 
I guess I I guess like hearing that it's Asian whiskey barrels, I just assumed it would be even higher than that, but it's not. It's very like drinkable, like a robust Cabernet. So I'm super excited about it. Cool. Shall we pap? Let's yeah. do it. Okay. Oh! 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 oh. Yeah. Robust whiskey pop. barrel pop. Oh, she had the the my my office fills with notes aroma of aromas of the vanilla is definitely there. Mm. I'm a, I'm very jealous of what you're drinking because I am drinking a single glass of Sauvignon Blanc that apparently the bottle has been open for a while in oh. my fridge. A little and Easter egg day. Yeah, a little bit, but whatever. Oh. I'm getting through it. You know what? Whatever works. Mm-hmm. I dumped out a couple of bottles from my fridge yesterday. I, and I spent felt good a lot about it. Of the Christmas holiday with Bill's parents mm-hmm. and uh or not Bill's parents, my brother-in-law's parents, and there were a lot of butterscotch schnapps going in my coffee. <gasps> yes. Ooh, uh, I like that. And so I'm still recovering. <laughs> and will be for many years. It's <laughs> Been a long road. All right. Well, cheers. 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 And Lucy, what is our background and hopefully psych mm-hmm. for fucked up fandom? Oh boy. Okay. Is I won't there get psych? To th- yes, there is. Yes. A little bit. So our wonderful fan picker Brooke gave me a ton of amazing ideas on things that I can tell you about for my segment. So thank you, Brooke. Cheers to you. You're incredible. Mm -hmm. So here's a quick overview just to start us out of what fandom is. And this is from Wikipedia. A fandom is a subculture composed of fans characterized by a feeling of empathy and camaraderie with others who share a common interest. Fans typically are interested in even minor details of the objects of their fandom and spend a significant portion of their time and energy involved with their interests often as a part of a social network with particular practices, differentiating fandom-affiliated people from those with only a casual interest. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, that so, makes sense. Yeah, the fandom is more of a community rather than just liking something and oh, not participating. Yeah. They're into it. Okay. Fandom can revolve around any area of human interest or activity, either narrowly or broadly defined. So like anything from a specific celebrity or or it can encompass entire hobbies, fashions, or genres. Merriam-Webster mm-hmm. traces the word back to 1903 Ooh. when it was defined as, quote, all the fans as of a sport. So... Today, the word can apply to a whole lot more than just sports, but it was yeah. like, you know, baseball fandom or whatever. Oh, well, and like a big focus on like entertainment, I feel sure. like. Sure. Well, initially it was about sports. Well, right. sports like were the only entertainment right. other than like live theater. <laughs> yeah, but it, it didn't apply Showgirls, to like theater right. or opera or things mm-hmm. like that. It was like sports specifically. But in fact, today, a lot of fandoms overlap, such as those related to film, comics, anime, cosplay, various TV shows, and buying or selling merchandise. Mm-hmm. And I didn't... Okay, so I did not learn the word fangirl until somebody said it to me on social media because I replied to their DM like four yes, years ago. I had never heard that either until we started doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. 
Had oh, not. I had. I had heard of people being like, oh my God, I'm fangirling. Mm-mm. Had never, not heard it. Never crossed my path. Hmm. So I still, when I started my notes, did not have a good idea of what the difference between a fangirl and a fanboy was. Mm-hmm. So I looked it up. Okay. Uh, it's again, more than just the obvious. It's way more. Okay. Ooh. One would assume, like Kenyon, that the terms are a function of binary gender, but it's actually so, it's much more about socially expected gender norms. So just because you identify as a female, for example, does not automatically make you a fangirl about a certain subject. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to expand on this a bit more, this is from an article from SeriouslyForSerious.com. And I thought it was really... (laughs) It was a really interesting article. Never heard of the website before. Seriously for realsies, though. Seriously for realies, soupstotesserious.com. <laughs> you guys, that's so fucking stupid. We're journalists. Turtly for sharks. Turtly really, for sharks journalists. Was a good, I mean, I think it was, you know, something like, what is it, like bustle? You can kind of publish your own shit. Oh, like I'm sure minimal it's great. Oversight. We, we've all used our various sources. Whatever <laughs> oh, yeah. works. Oh, yeah. Well, I did look at several different sources on the difference, and this one verbalized the same ideas pretty well. So fangirl is used to describe a fan, usually female, whose focus in their fandom is based on emotions or relationships. Oh, God. Okay. okay. I knew it. I knew there was going to be some sort of fucking... Hierarchy of... Patriarchal hierarchy. Yeah. If you're mm. fangirling, it means it's about makeup and emotions. We'll <laughs> get to it. <laughs> for the emotion part, the word fangirl evokes the image of, for example, teenage girls screaming when the mm-hmm. Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan yeah. show or when BTS recreated... That iconic performance on Late Night with Stephen Colbert. I don't know what that's referring to, but whatever. Right. Iconic. Iconic. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I'm not a fangirl. (laughs) Except when it comes to Animal Crossing, because I am very emotionally connected to, for example, Sherry, who just gave me her picture. Oh, luck. That means love. I know. She's at my house right now. Anyway. Fanboys, on the other hand, are generally considered more technical and detail-oriented within Ugh. their fandom. I already hate them. Yeah. I already hate them. Honey, I hate everything about them. Honey, we'll get to it. We'll go <laughs> to it. Uh, I'm going to lament all the way through. Do you hate men? No, I just hate fanboys. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucking fanboys. Fanboys are the ones who have the technical specs of the Millennium Falcon or have memorized every statistic about their favorite football team. It's not about emotions. It's about a mastery of the details. It's a knowledge-based concept of fandom rather than interpretive one. Yeah, as the whole name three songs on mm-hmm. their sophomore album. Yeah, I yep. hate that. I've gotten that from I'll name three ways that men. I'm gonna fucking murder you, you little bitch. That's why Jesus. I stopped wearing. I couldn't wear band T-shirts anymore. I was sick of being fucking pop quizzed mm-hmm. by, by strangers. By men. Uh, <laughs> I'm, so, all I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed. Okay, yeah. <gasps> So this article goes on to talk about why these quote-unquote different types of fandom are coded as male and female and how this false dichotomy can add to damaging gender stereotypes. So the takeaway here is that while there may be a blurry distinction between a fangirl and a fanboy, ultimately it doesn't serve fandom overall. 
because women can enjoy the practical details of Star Trek and men can enjoy fan fiction about Harry Potter in equal measure. Goddamn right. We don't need and, to bring gender into it. So there and you is don't have a to difference. Prove anything, and you no. don't have to be an expert on something to, to be enjoy a fan it. of it. Yeah, right. I'm saying that these are. This is part of the language involved mm-hmm. in fandom. So I'm explaining it to you. I am I'm not no way at you. saying we're it's yelling not into problematic. The void. Yeah, right. we're just yelling into the void. We know it you is, get it. It is problematic, at, but this explains what the difference is, not saying that it's justified, not saying that it's okay. Right. So right. for anybody listening who uses these terms and maybe now puts a lot of weight into these terms, maybe be Start a little bit more aware. Men who like football fangirls. Mm-hmm. We're just fans, just fucking fans. We don't need to bring gender into it at all, I think. I think we can kind of Flip can, it on its head a little bit. To we annoy. control men a little yeah. bit. Right, 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 right. I'll never stop trolling men. Mm, no. <laughs> it's your king. It's my king. Emasculation is your king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so on to fan fiction. Yes. Mm. We know what fan fiction is, and if you don't, here's what it is. It's fictional writing written in an amateur capacity by fans unauthorized by, but based on an existing work of fiction. Fan fiction websites for K-pop stars are a terrifying hellscape, and I encourage you to check them. It's basically <laughs> how blogs started. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how they continue. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, other than our podcast blog page, who is blogging? Oh, <laughs> and the, f- the, number of p- the number of relatives... Who ask me, how's, how's your, your blog? blog? <laughs> your audio blog. I don't even get audio blog. <laughs> Just blog. I have. I've been meaning to read your blog. Bob's Law Blog. Okay. <laughs> my friend Ben likes to troll me to my face and calls this podcast my little project or <laughs> my, my skits. Oh, it's my a skit <laughs> show that you do. Oh my god. So you keep you keep plugging away and maybe it'll catch on someday. <laughs> Somewhere my grandmother is telling a ghost the same exact thing. <laughs> I, I don't really understand it, but I'm proud of her anyway. Oh, you started a radio program. Even in death, oh. with the infinite knowledge of the universe, my grandmother still has no clue what a podcast is. Oh. I'm certain. <laughs> Thousand percent not, no. Okay, God rest so, Helen's soul. So we know what fan fiction is, those little skits. <laughs> but do you know what slash fiction is? Is it like no. horror fanfic? Nope, it's better. It's a genre of fan fiction that focuses on queer, romantic, and or sexual relationships between characters. <gasps> well, okay, God I bless love that. that. So if you go to so the Scott's drive, which will be on the blog. Middle school journal. <laughs> yes, I have two examples of slash fiction that I absolutely I was going to say, definitely some Harry Potter, although I would have gone to Hermione first mm. and foremost. Yeah. Well, okay. So to Imagine further Imagine if explain. Hermione had stolen Cho Chang from Harry. Y'all. Let's I mean, imagine. Would have been nuts. <laughs> Let's so, imagine right now. <laughs> so the term slash typically refers to a male homosexual relationship. And once again, we're slipping into the binary. The, the, the human mm-hmm. race is very... 
you know, Diggers. we're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it typically refers to a male homosexual relationship, and some use the phrase femme slash to distinguish a female relationship. It's widely believed that slash fiction began in the late 1970s with some saucy Star Trek action between Kirk and Spock. So that's one of the pictures that I have. That is very intimate. Actually, Scott, (laughs) I wish that I had known because I had, and when this comes out, it'll be known, but I had Scott for Secret Santa, and I fucking wish that I had known. I wish too, because that would have been absolutely amazing. I had Blortney. Oh, nice. And I got her so much fun stuff. <laughs> I sent her like a bunch of skincare. Anyway, moving Same. on. Same. <laughs> I have Set. one of you, so I'm not going to say anything. Luck. Okay. So this slash fiction was generally written by female fans. It still is generally written by female fans and also consumed by female fans. And the it's abbreviated as K slash S, so Kirk slash Spock. Okay. So this sort of kind of code word was shortened to just slash as it moved on to other popular TV shows of the time, like Starsky and Hutch. Oh, <laughs> wow. nice. Yeah. So that's just, then it just became like slash as the genre. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Slash fiction offers, in particular to young queer people, a safe place to explore their feelings in a creative way that also celebrates a fantasy world. So something that they're interested in apart from, you know, sexuality. You know, I imagine you could, like, easily have a poster of Starsky and Hutch on your bedroom wall as, like, a little closeted queer kid. Mm-hmm. And your mom would, you know, she'd be like, well, be like, he's oh, just capsule. really into that show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I love it. Another thing that I read was that I really liked, the fact that it's mostly written by women. It gives women the opportunity to write about eroticism and sexuality without sexualizing themselves. Mm-hmm. So like women writing about women writing about. For example, a sexual relationship between two men, like you take you take the the female or the male gaze, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, towards women out of the equation entirely. It's probably very freeing. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So the main kind of subject of my segment is what we're going to get to now because it's widely recognized as like kind of the first fandom. And that is that of Sherlock Holmes, the fans of whom are known to this day as Sherlockians or Holmesians. We, Scott and I, when we worked for the Mixed Blood Theater Company, had a colleague who is like a professional Sherlock Holmes expert and would Mm -hmm. go to all of these like conventions and shit. Okay. It's a massive like global society. Yeah. I was always more of a Watson fan, but okay. I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So like I just said, there are societies around the world and the numbers that I saw vary, but I think the most recent was like around 350 separate groups globally who are into this. Hmm. So they engage in discussions, tourism, as in like going to London and looking at all the Mm -hmm. places where Sherlock Holmes went. Absolutely. And collecting books and things related to the, remind you, fictional character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Right. And I didn't realize how major these stories were at the time and how this example can be applied to modern fandom. So we're going to get into it 
with an article by Catherine Bromley entitled A Case Study of Early British Sherlockian Fandom from the University of Portsmouth. So she says, when Sherlock Holmes first appeared in the pages of The Strand magazine, the immediacy of his popularity with readers prompted a number of visible consequences. So the circulation of The Strand grew as a result, and conversely, it shrunk by 20,000 subscribers when Holmes was, quote unquote, killed in 1893. I didn't know they wow. ever killed him off. Okay. I think he fell off a cliff. Mm. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Libraries were also forced to stay open longer on publication days to meet the demand of readers, and writings about Holmes began to appear in newspapers and periodicals from all kinds of sources. These included fan letters to Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle, Holmes, and Watson, so people would write literal letters to mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Like yeah. Santa. Like, care right. of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> right. Damn. They also included so-called interviews with Sherlock Holmes, the first being in The Observer in 1892, and essays and letters critiquing the entire canon. These are historic instances of actions we recognize as being fan activity, which Cornell Sandvoss defines as, quote, regular emotionally involved consumption of a given popular narrative or text in the form of books, television shows, films, or music, as well as popular texts in the broader sense. So have either of you ever, like, let's say since you were not a kid, have either of you ever written a fan letter or missive ever? No. I mean, I emailed Allie. Like, I me emailed Allie Ward and she wrote back. Yeah. <laughs> and I emailed one podcast once. I, I don't write emails really, but I will comment on like people's like socials. Like famous people's socials. I no, guess. a little bit more of like an actual like not a comment, but like a message. Yeah, or a I, have, letter. I have not done that. I don't think I have either. You know, I feel like it used to be more of a thing. Like, my mm-hmm. mom used to, like, write letters to, like, the monkeys. I feel like I should because there are so many, you know, like, pop culture and just, like, entertainment influences that I've gotten so much joy from. Right. I feel like I owe them some sort of, like, thank you. Well, they don't care. Yeah, they probably they we probably, do. If they're big enough, they don't care. We care. We're not pop stars. Oh no, I was not talking about us. Maybe they'd like <laughs> consider it. the scale. Yeah, but Just also write to Lady Gaga. Well, she'll <laughs> get my letter. We'll also kind of get to the um, writing physical letters to people. So okay. Mm. The fans of Sherlock Holmes of the 1890s demonstrated a high level of emotional involvement in the text. Most famously, the outcry at Holmes's death led many to write to Conan Doyle to plead for his return. Mm-hmm. So, like, his fans, when he was killed off, they, like, fully mourned in public. Like, a bunch of people wow. wore, like, black armbands. Oh, okay. It was like a, it was like a mourning situation. Mm-hmm. Dang. These readers were invested in the life of Sherlock Holmes and consumed all manner of texts about him, interacting with them in a variety of ways, such as collecting postcards, writing letters, and reading pastiches and parodies. However, a Sherlock Holmes fandom did not did not emerge fully formed, and so it's important to bear in mind the historical context in which it developed. 
The Sherlock Holmes canon was written at a time when fans were able to interact with the canon through a much larger number of texts due to an influx of mass media. So again, mm. 1890s was actually a really it was a it was a very technologically progressive era. Big time mm. for the written word. Mm-hmm. Mm. Kate Jackson has pointed out that this was a result of a number of factors, including the development of new journalism, print technology, and a consumer revolution, all of which aimed to extend the readership of periodicals and other print media to include the lower and middle classes. Wow. So this was the first, I mean, like, if you imagine, like, it was basically Harry Potter. Right. That phrase. Yeah. But at yeah. a time when lower class people were just starting to have to access, access to these to things. Literacy, let alone. Yeah. All yeah. Exactly. Or just like yeah. any kind of leisure time mm-hmm. at all. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 So Bromley goes on to talk about the concentration of fan letters being used by Sherlockians in large part because autographs were a really big thing in the late 19th century. Oh. And fans would regularly write to, quote unquote, Sherlock Holmes asking for an autograph. Wow. Okay, that also makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write to Harry Potter asking for an autograph. Have you ever asked Not for an Daniel autograph? Radcliffe. Oh, absolutely. Actually, I went to Comic-Con mm-hmm. and I, like one of the years that it was in, that they do it in Minnesota like every year before COVID. And I stood in line for like an hour and a half to get autographs on the back of my Quidditch t-shirt from the guys who played the Weasley twins. Oh, and I am cool. not ashamed. <laughs> and you got him. I am not at all ashamed. <laughs> My cousin has like been a performer or what, like you mm-hmm. know, been a featured person at Comic Con before mm-hmm. because of all his fantasy show acting that he's done. Incredible! That's Shout so out. cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, we sign autographs at our live shows. Oh yeah. That's okay. true. I forgot about that. <laughs> I know. I love how you're talking about it like it's this crazy thing. And I'm like, we do that for work for like hours. <laughs> it's, been, <laughs> it's been so long. Waiting, waiting for somebody else to say it. We waited in line for like four hours for good Charlotte autographs. We did at Warp Tour. Fuck it, been there. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to go. Well, get okay. a new childhood, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I would go today if it were the same lineup. Oh, yeah. A thousand percent. And I'd know all the songs. They should should relaunch Warp Tour for elder millennials. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they should. This is accurate. That would make my life. Okay. So obviously, and apart from some readers who genuinely did not realize that Holmes was fictional, this (sighs) writing writing to him and asking for autographs was done with an ironic sense of participation. Mm-hmm. This was one of the earliest recognized examples of modern fan pathology. Mm. So Bromley talks about why it's not really a huge stretch from asking people for their autographs in general, um, as the late 19th century fad was. Actually, people like would have an autograph book by their front door and every single visitor would sign it. Mm, oh, wow. like in so, case they became famous or just to like track no, who they met with to track. Well, to track who they met with, it was sort of like a guest book, but also they they were really into examining people's handwriting to Love kind that. of determine like their personal characteristics. Mm-hmm. Mm, like totally. they thought they thought handwriting was sort of like 
I don't know, like palm reading sort of in a way. Or like astrology almost. Yeah. Yeah. They f- yeah. So at, at this time, a written autograph or some sort of written correspondence held a lot more weight than it does now. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not a big stretch from asking people for their autographs in general to asking a fictional character for their autograph. Both are very basic yet intimate proof of someone's existence. So that said, a prevailing sentiment about these Sherlockian fans was that they were, quote unquote, underdeveloped. And reading Mm. between the lines, that means they were fucking stupid. Mm. Or just, yeah, like maybe a little childish. Immature. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another quote from this article, Matt Hills has explored how the cultural identity of the fan is tied up within the dichotomies of us and them which implied different moral dualisms, and he argues that academic practice typically transform fandom into an absolute other. Mm. Fans have therefore been subject to readings that sees their behavior as childish or pathological. As Jolie Jensen has pointed out, quote, dark assumptions underlie the two images of fan pathology, so obsessed loner and frenzied fan in a crowd, and they mm. haunt the literature on fans and fandom. Fans are seen as displaying symptoms of a wider social dysfunction, that of modernity, that threatens all of, quote unquote, us. The us There's half. definitely some judgment, I yeah. would say, of, of, and like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, moralizing on different types of fandom. Like, I've waited in line to get an author's signature at like mm-hmm. a book fair, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and like, somehow no, that's less dorky than yeah, no right. one yeah. bats an eye. Exactly. Nobody judges that. But if yep. you like, yeah, dress up and go to Comic-Con, like some people embrace that and some people judge that and they fucking mm-hmm. shouldn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say, I think in a lot of ways, fans in the modern sense uh, or in the sense of modern fandom are still often seen as overindulgent nerds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I can't sleep without a fan. So <laughs> God. <laughs> You're just Kathy Hilton with a fan. You've oh been, my god, I oh am though. My god. I would travel with my fan. Would you drink I a would. Red Bull at 2 a.m. thinking it was just and pop. Com- and <laughs> complain about how you can't sleep? Uh yes and have. <laughs> Can confirm I would. All right. I have one sentence left. A lot of fandom arenas today are correlated with quote unquote dorky fantasy subjects like D D, anime, Star Trek, those kinds of things. But there are far more nuanced cultural, commercial, economical, psychological, and sociological factors behind these fandom behaviors. And I think it was super interesting to take a deeper dive into the world of fandom, what the motivations of fans and things like that. So thank you mm-hmm. to Brooke. This was super duper fascinating, like oh, way yeah. more than I anticipated. Yeah. Thank <laughs> Very you. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Well, should we hear a quick word from our sponsors? Sure. So I have the world's thinnest hair. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a record and I've beaten it. But it's so, beautiful oh. hair. I mean, I, I like my, I love it now. I liked it before. Um, mm-hmm. So previously I'd been feeling kind of self-conscious. I really wanted to do something about it apart from just like, getting layers and like highlights and stuff, like doing something about my actual hair. Mm -hmm. So I started looking around and I found Vegamore and I love it. Mm. Vegamore is a transformative 100% vegan solution. 
and it takes a clean, holistic approach to hair health that leverages smart botanicals, clinically proven to promote visibly thicker, fuller, longer-looking hair. I have to tell you, I've been using this for several weeks, and I'm good friends with the person who, like, does my hair, like, cuts my hair. And he was like, honey, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Your hair keep looks amazing. And to get a compliment from your hairdresser yeah. Like, yeah. outside That's of the, the salon, yep. I'm still riding high. I got to be honest. Mm-hmm. So Vegamore's Grow Revitalizing Shampoo and Conditioner Kit and Grow Serum work together to create visibly thicker hair and improve hair from the roots. You can feel a difference. It's... It's, I've never felt anything like this before, in truth. It's so easy to use. Just massage the shampoo into your scalp for 60 seconds and then follow up with the conditioner. For prime results, follow up your hair wash routine with a daily dropper full of the serum. The serum, y'all, oh my God. Mm-hmm. I also It's so luxurious. It is. I also have like kind of thinner patches of hair. Like mm-hmm. where a person might be experiencing like pattern baldness, for example. Mm-hmm. My hair's just way thinner there. Yeah. I've been putting the serum on my anxiety bald patch that I gave yep. myself from scratching whenever yeah. I was nervous. That's yeah. the move. That's the move. It really, really works. So you apply the serum to your scalp. You just rub it in and that's it. It's that fast. It's that easy. It doesn't leave you feeling greasy. It's just like a very simple thing to just blend in, so to speak, to your regular hair routine. I also have this like rubber brush that they use. Mm, to, I like, love that brush. Rub that stuff in. Oh, my God. Yes. All of their products. I just I can't. They also smell amazing. So you don't mm-hmm. you don't like leave your shower bathroom area where you're supposed to be like getting clean and feeling fresh with like smelling like chemicals or anything. Oh no. Mm -hmm. This whole system is seamless. It's amazing. That's actually my favorite part is that all Vegamore products are 100% vegan and cruelty free and they never contain parabens or hormones. Mm -hmm. Which is amazing for especially for hair growth stuff to not contain those things is fantastic. So mm-hmm. Vegamore has something for everyone looking to improve their hair health. They help give you back healthy, beautiful-looking hair without harmful chemicals. And best of all, Vegamore has a 90-day money-back guarantee. And even better, 91% of customers say that they saw visibly thicker hair with Vegamore in just three months of use. Wow. That's, That's incredible. So, cool. so yeah. I mean, we've been using Vegamore and we already love it. So we know you will too. Start your journey to longer, fuller looking hair by going to vegamore.com slash gals and use code gals to save 20% on your first order. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash gals, code gals to save 20% at vegamore.com slash gals and treat your hair. Treat it. So... I don't know about you, but Best Fiends has become my, like, in-between anything else I'm doing fun little pick-me-up activity. (laughs) So, like, while waiting for my coffee to brew, while, you know, like, waiting in line somewhere, or riding shotgun. Yep. Just on the airplane, like, just in-between anything, 
you will find me playing Best Fiends. And also it like affects my TV choices because I'm like, I can't read subtitles. I've got to play Best Fiends the entire time I'm watching this. A thousand percent (laughs) same. Yeah. I love it. I mean, you all know that I am obsessed with it. Uh, Right now I am on level 2,412. Oh my Uh, God. I'm I'm on on level 889. I'm on 1330. Oh, you're catching up to me, honey. I think I just get really into it when there are like the holiday themed quests or like the mini games. Like right now, Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of the Minutian Disco where you like collect records in each level. And then Mm -hmm. when you get those records, it unlocks different little like you get extra keys or you get gold or you get like I just love those little mini game achievements. Mm -hmm. They're so much fun. Or like little outfits for your people. Yes. Yeah. You can unlock the cutest little outfits for your fiends. It's so cute. And so Best Fiends is just like my go-to. It's just the best. It's a mobile puzzle game that anyone can download and play. Whether you have a few minutes or a few hours, Best Fiends is the perfect puzzle game to lose yourself in because you're having so much fun. The game features tons of cute characters that help you solve thousands of fun puzzles. And the more you play, the more characters you collect. And then the more you win, the more challenges you face. And I love the little characters because they each have like different special abilities. So you have to use your brain to go, okay, what level am I on? What's the objective here? Like what, you know, who should I select that's going to make me successful? I just love those little those little puzzly aspects of the whole game. And new characters and challenging puzzles are added all the time. So you're not going to get bored. And like I was saying about this Minutian Disco thing, there's tons of fun events where you can win big rewards in the game. So like, I love to rack up my gold and then like hoard it. Yeah, just see how much gold I hoard I can the get. gold. Definitely. It's my favorite. And with thousands of levels, you literally can play as long as you want and never get bored. And trust me, we have been playing it for almost four years. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and we're not yeah. bored. We love we're it. not slowing down anytime soon. No, ma'am. So download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So are we ready for my case? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. You betcha. Sure. <laughs> it's definitely a very famous case. And mm-hmm. so some people will know all about it already. And I'm sorry, but I didn't know all the details. So I figured maybe people our generation and younger might not know all the details. So. I'm excited Excellent. because I do know about this, but I definitely don't know the details. So I was pumped when I mm-hmm. was, saw this on the document, like on the drive earlier. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As I definitely <laughs> oh, was not yeah. doing my notes two hours before we recorded. <laughs> Oh, that's generous. (laughs) That's me planning ahead, y'all. Okay. So Jodie Foster. Yes. Quain was born on November 19th, 1962 in a panic room. Oh, my God. So good. (laughs) In Los Angeles, California. Her midwife was Kristen Stewart. Oh, my God. Fucked up. (laughs) Although her name was actually Alicia. Little known fact. Her oh. older siblings began referring to her as Jody at a young age, and the name just stuck. That's so weird. It's not like a middle name. Uh, it might be a middle name, but it's just what her siblings called her. This is like how my our sister's really good friend Bree really wanted my sister and brother to name Emily Claire, mm-hmm. and now just refuses to call her anything but Claire. 
It's like us calling Courtney's new cat Tambourine Faye. Yeah. Courtney's new cat, but oh, yes. Oh, right, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's a better name than the name that her five-year-old chose for that uh, cat. Shock. I can't even remember what that name it's was. It's like Optimus Prime or something yeah. from fucking... Bumblebee. Yeah. What is that, a Star War? I don't and know. we decided that Tambourine Faye was the cat's name, and it so it shall be. be better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Jody Tambourine Faye Foster <laughs> began acting at the age of three. Yep. And this was essentially by accident. So her mother just brought her along because she like didn't have daycare. Uh, while Jody's older brother Buddy auditioned for a commercial, mm. but the casting agents took notice of Jody instead. And cast her. Was that her brother? Driver? Was so pissed. I no, literally she was not in Taxi Driver. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. We will get to it, but not at the age of three. We will I know. get to oh, it. Oh, right, three. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. So I wrote in my notes that this is literally Amanda's ultimate fantasy to have like your sister be auditioning for something, but then you get noticed Just snatch instead. It. That is my ultimate fantasy. I know. You know what? You nailed it. <laughs> You've been saying Jodie Foster this whole time, and I've been picturing Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow. Okay. So you're right. Okay. Jodie Foster was in Taxi Drive. Yes, <laughs> we are right. <laughs> yeah, and we will get to it. <laughs> Her luck. career took off almost immediately, and she was soon the primary breadwinner for her family just from acting gigs, starting at cool. three that's not a burden or a mantle to carry at all. <laughs> Which one was in Alien? Her oh, or the other one? That The other one. Not, Sigourney okay. Weaver. God damn it. They all look the same. Wow. The other, other white meat. The, the other one. <laughs> the other, other white lady. Neither Jamie Lee Curtis <laughs> nor Jodie Foster. In my brain, they have the same face. <laughs> that is They clear. don't look anything alike. It's like Jake Gyllenhaal and the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Toby McGuire. Toby McGuire. Yeah, the other one. Alike. The other one. Okay. <laughs> Can't believe Toby McGuire stole Taylor Swift's scarf. <laughs> He would never. <laughs> also, everybody go see Spider-Man No Way Home. It's fucking amazing. Moving on. Okay. So she <laughs> appeared in numerous commercials, over 50 television shows, and made her feature film debut at the age of 10 in a Disney movie called Napoleon and Samantha. What? Wow. Is this on Disney Plus? I'm Googling this I right now. I don't know. It was from the 70s. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> There's like really it was a stage old animation. Play. I don't know if you've seen a lot of things that were filmed in the 70s. Hold on. I'm seeing where I can stream it. Don't hold up. Okay, nah, get on Amazon great. Prime. Okay. So the turning point in Foster's career came in 1976 when she Ugh. played a, quote, underage sex worker or what we would now call a child sex trafficking yeah, victim. victim. Yeah. Yeah. In Martin Scorsese's film, Taxi Driver, which I have never seen, and I know it's a classic, and I don't care. Quick anecdote. Okay. Napoleon and Samantha. (laughs) Napoleon is an 11-year-old boy being brought up in the Rocky Mountains by his grandfather. Napoleon has befriended a circus clown. Oh. And when the clown has to return to Europe, Napoleon agrees to look after the clown's aging lion. 
This is like word salad. Contrary to popular belief, he's a gentle creature. So boy and animal form a friendship. However, Napoleon's world is turned upside down when his grandfather dies. Who's Samantha? Is that the lion? I guess. Why wasn't it Napoleon and the lion? I think Samantha is the lion. Jodie Foster, wait, Jodie Foster plays Samantha, so I'm confused. Maybe Samantha's not the lion, or maybe the, she's the voice of the lion. I don't know. We got to move you, on. You it's keep a long, going. It's I'm going to dive case. deeper. We got to move dive on. Deeper. We'll tackle this later. Deeper. Okay. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So back to Taxi Driver. <laughs> she would later say of the role that it was, quote, the first time anyone asked me to create a character that wasn't myself. It was the first time I realized that acting wasn't this hobby you just sort of did, but that there was actually some craft. Oh, mm. shit, Jody. Well, all her other roles. She was roles, like nine. Yeah, all, she nine. was really young, and all her I'm other just roles she had just a been lion like in kid. One of the sh- <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, she doesn't play the lion. Napoleon has a sister named Samantha, and okay. she's in it too. But she can't be. You well, know, fucking bury the lead with the title. She can't be in the goddamn synopsis, but <laughs> but only in the title. I am putting of the cover art from this in the drive. This Please is do. nuts. This is some fucking lions, lions, and more lions shit. Oh, <laughs> I forgot the about. lost case. Ugh. Maybe I should redo that case for you both as a drunk dive. Yes. You definitely should. It was my favorite thing you've ever. Well, that and the dolphin slit, the genital so slit. So good. Yeah. The genital slit. <laughs> so Foster's role in the film also established her as a serious actor as opposed to just a child star and elevated her to an entirely new level of fame, which she has basically maintained ever since. Unfortunately, this included attracting the attention of one fan in particular who would carry his obsession to disturbing lengths. Fucking my favorite kind of length. (laughs) Girth is my favorite kind of length. (laughs) The opposite of length. (laughs) John Warnock Hinckley Jr. Ish. Yeah. Grew up in Dallas and came from a wealthy family. His father was chairman and president of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation, and his family owned the Hinkley Oil Company. Oh. oh of uh, Aaron Brockovich fame? Well, I don't think. Oh, my God. Was Maybe. it? Or was the town called Hinkley? Maybe it was the town. Maybe the town was called Hinkley. But yeah, Hinkley factored in. Mm-hmm. So- Hinkley Jr., however, did not follow in his father's corporate footsteps. He kind of, like, he was a free spirit. He kind of attended college off and on before eventually dropping out for good and moving to Los Angeles to try to become a songwriter. Ish. So many of my ex-boyfriends. Yeah. Yep. SoundCloud DJ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> aspiring One is aspiring. One aspiring. is too many. But oh. unsurprisingly, Hank was constantly oh. writing home and hitting his rich parents up for money. On occasion in these pathetic missives home, he would mention a girlfriend named Lynn Collins, who turned out to be a total fabrication. One in the hink, one in the stink. Oh, my God, gross. Oh, my God. Ew. That's the worst thing you've ever said. Ever said. 
<laughs> that is really? up there with the cyst story from uh, Gag. I wouldn't know because I left <laughs> the planet. You left. I left the planet. You jumped off a bridge. <laughs> I was gone. She gone. <laughs> oh my god. So once it was just, once it was discovered that he had been like fabricating a girlfriend that he like kind of half fully believed in Ugh. in these letters home, he, you know, he had to seek medical help for his emotional problems and he was prescribed tranquilizers and antidepressants. I'm I'm guessing his parents kind of intervened here. Mm-hmm. Then, when Hinckley was 21 years old, the movie Taxi Driver was released, and he became completely and utterly obsessed with it. Ugh. He began dressing and behaving like Robert De Niro's character, Travis Bickle. Ooh, that's not good. Not a role model. No. no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But in particular, he developed an infatuation with Jodie Foster's character, Iris Steensma. And this is extra disturbing given the fact that she was a sexualized child. 13-year-old. Yeah. yeah. She was, like, young, but she also looked a shitload younger. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the original Jean Benet, even mm-hmm. in, like, some of the clothing choices. Oh, yeah. I feel like Jean Benet's parents kind of imitated in, like, a really gross way. There's, like, a cowgirl thing happening. I don't even know. Ugh. Really gross. Around this time, he also developed an interest in guns and began purchasing and practicing with them frequently. Well, that is always a good sign. Mm-hmm. When you can't tell reality from fiction and mm-hmm. you have access to firearms. Throw a gun in there. Why not? So uh, roughly four years later in 1980, Jodie Foster graduated from high school and began attending Yale University because she's a fucking... Brilliant B. Brilliant person. Mm-hmm. In addition to her busy acting schedule, she was also she also excelled academically and was valedictorian of her high school, which was the Lycée Français de Los Angeles. Wow. So she's Bella just- suck my dictorian. What's <laughs> up? Let's go. <laughs> so when Hinckley heard that his you know Jodie Foster was going to be a student at Yale. Uh Remember, she's like turning 18. Uh He fully moved from Los Angeles to New Haven Uh to be closer to her. He just moved across country to be near her. Okay. Around this time, he also began attempting to communicate with the object of his obsession, sending her love letters and poems and attempting to reach her by phone but all of his efforts were more or less unsuccessful. Like, he did actually get her address, and he did get her phone number. Good Which Lord. is terrifying. But, and she, so she would pick up the phone. There wasn't caller ID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, but she never actually spoke to him. She realized what the fuck was happening, and she would quickly hang up the phone when he called. Mm-hmm. And so she eventually reported him to campus authorities and handed over all the, like, crazy letters to Uh, the dean. Hinckley then began fantasizing about larger and more elaborate gestures that he could concoct. The best gesture would be to leave everyone Mm -hmm. alone. Yep. 
to attract her attention, including hijacking an aircraft. Oh, this is so romantic. I wish wish Bill would hijack an aircraft on my behalf. Yeah, then maybe you would deign to notice him and fall in love. (laughs) Maybe I can get her to notice me. Yeah. (laughs) He's upstairs making you dinner right now. Uh, he better be. I'm going to text him. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I know that this Hinkley guy had, like, serious mental and emotional problems. And, like, that is hard. And he, he, but still, this is absurd. Still-ish. Still-ish. Yeah. So, ultimately, he settled on a different plan. And this made a lot more sense. To get Jodie Foster's attention and affection, he planned to assassinate President Jimmy Carter. Oh, I get God this. Yes, yeah, this tracks. Right. So I have no further questions. Mm-hmm. He believed that this would allow him to, quote, make a name for himself and that this new fame would make starlet Jodie Foster view him as more of an equal. Right. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Got it. Meanwhile, she's just trying to fucking go, go to college. To yeah. Live. <laughs> yeah. Stay alive. God. And so old Hank left New Haven and began trailing President Carter from state to state before ultimately being arrested on a weapons charge in Nashville, Tennessee. And my God, do you have to fuck up to be arrested on a weapons charge <sighs> in, in Nashville? Nashville. <laughs> oh, good point. In the fucking 80s. Yeah. So after his arrest, he returned home to his parents. They sought psychiatric treatment for him. Again, they're very wealthy. He has all the means and resources in the world to, like, get this treatment. Uh But he was unable to let go of his obsessive thoughts. In a recording he made during this time, he stated, quote, Jody is the only thing that matters now. Anything I might do in 1981 would be solely for Jody Foster's sake. I think I'd rather just see her not on Earth... Uh, than being with other guys. Oh, oh my okay. god. If I can't have her, no one can. Yep. Yep. Uh. yep. So soon he had renewed his assassination plan, but this time it was a different president because Jimmy Carter was no longer in office. So he had <laughs> he to did s- not he didn't steal the deal in time. Yeah. So now he had to focus on the newly inaugurated Ronald Reagan. So he began studying the JFK assassination in an attempt to make sure that he was successful this time. Mm. He also wrote a letter to Jodie Foster that read, quote, Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Ish. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, meaning she was like, hello, I didn't even know who you were and I hung up. Yeah. Yeah. I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. I've been watching you from afar. Okay. Jody, I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you. Whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. What? Whatever. Jesus Christ. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. 
I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms that I am doing all of this for your sake. I feel like anyone who uses in no uncertain terms is Mm -hmm. a fucking lunatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, why when you said impress, did I hear impress Nate? Oh, God. (laughs) You know what I would say in no uncertain terms is that this fuck guy off. needs to leave her the fuck alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, making the president's survival her problem. Right. right. I did it. It's all for you, Damien. Uh, so he never, <laughs> he never actually sent this letter, but it was later recovered as evidence from a hotel room that he had been staying in. And that sentence kind of tells you where this is going. Oh, God. Then on March 30th, 1981, as Reagan exited the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., Hinckley fired six times at the president and his entourage with a revolver. Mm. None of his shots hit Reagan directly, but the president was severely wounded by a bullet that ricocheted off of the side of his, like, waiting limousine, and then it hit him in the chest. Oh, my God. So the shooting also wounded a police officer named Thomas Delahanty and a Secret Service agent named Timothy McCarthy, as well as Reagan's press secretary, James Brady. So four different people were fucking injured in this crazed shooting. Jesus Christ. For Jodie Foster. All the while, I'm imagining him dressed as Robert De Niro from the movie. (laughs) Like (laughs) a thousand percent. Like with the gray military jacket. Yeah. Yeah shaved head and shit the like short little mohawk and the aviators yes 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 all the paraphernalia there's a photo of of robert de niro as travis bickle on the drive thank god pickle so a man named alfred antonucci a labor official from cleveland and oh my god that reminds you i have to tell you this grandma lynn story but off air because it's too juicy for the podcast i'm sorry listeners but i can't (laughs) All right. And just remind me after. Okay. Great. So a labor official from Cleveland was standing near Hankley when he started firing and was able to hit him in the head before pulling him to the ground and subduing him. So Reagan was seriously injured, but recovered quickly and was released from the hospital after 11 days. So he was fine. And he went on to have a second term. Great. Reaganomics. Yeah. Not that he I want trickled, him to be murdered. Down. No, no. He trickled back down to health. Yeah. <laughs> On April 25th, he returned to the Oval Office to a standing ovation. Blah, blah, blah. The assassination attempt has been credited with boosting his popularity in the early days of his presidency. <laughs> and Reagan came to believe, not fucking narcissistically at all, that God had spared him so oh. that he might go on to fulfill his greater purpose. Here we go. Letting Jesus. people with AIDS die. die. Yeah. Making poor people poorer. Yep. Greater purpose. Yep. Greater purpose. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hinckley was charged with 13 offenses and his trial began in 1982. So this is all kind of escalated very quickly. His defense attorney brought in expert witnesses to testify that Hinckley was likely suffering from schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, and dysthemia. The fuck? I don't actually know what dysthemia is. Dysthemia. Hold on. 
It's defined as a low mood occurring for at least two years along with at least two other symptoms of depression. So it's Okay, a, then yeah. we all have this. Yeah. It's a mild okay. but long-term form of depression. So COVID. Yeah. yeah. Example we have global we have global dysthemia going on right now. Examples of symptoms include lost interest in normal activities, check, hopelessness, check, low self-esteem, check, low check. appetite. No, not check. That. <laughs> low appetite, no, fuck you. <laughs> low energy, sleep changes, and poor check. concentration. Check, check, check. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, dysthemia. Got it. I literally dysthemic. got it. Yeah. Okay. Color me dysthemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Hinckley was ultimately found not guilty for reasons of insanity and was transferred into long-term psychiatric care at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. Okay. And the hospital classified him as, quote, unpredictably dangerous and as a patient who had the potential to harm himself or a third party at any time. So he's basically... He's get he's where he should be, I mm-hmm. think, which oh, is sure. a secure facility. Yes, correct. Where he can get where he's care. Getting care. Yeah. yeah. So around the time of the trial, Jodie Foster published an essay about her experience as like the subject of this bizarre and violent stalking episode in Esquire magazine, writing of Hinckley that quote, a man can buy a poster pin it on his locker and imagine the most minute details about a slinky starlet. He'll know her through and through. He'll possess her external reality. So, of course, Hinkley, quote, knew me. That woman on the screen was digging in her bag of tricks and representing herself for everyone to assess, to get to know, to take home. Oh. Okay. Quote, I am, she, she, quote goes on, I am sorry for people who confuse love with obsession and hurt by those who have inflicted their confusion on me. Mm. Obsession is pain and a longing for something that does not exist. Mm. John Hinckley's greatest crime was the confusion of love and obsession. The trivialization of love is something I will never forgive him. His ignorance only prods me to say that he's missing a great deal. Mm. Love is blissful. Obsession is pitiful, self-indulgent. This is a lesson I've learned. I'll always be wary of people who proclaim their love for me. I know what love is, do they? Oh, she is so brilliant. I yeah, love that it. That is that was like that chilling. Mm-hmm. I'm completely I'm obsessed, I'm obsessed with, her. with Jody Foster. <laughs> I'm in love. Who do I have to kill? For Jodie Foster to love me. I'm moving to L.A. so I can be closer to her. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I assume that's where she lives. I'm going to shave my head. Jodie Foster home address. Oh, my God. Do not. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So in in response, in 1983, fucking Hinckley was interviewed by Penthouse Magazine. How was this allowed? Jesus. Uh, That's fucked up. Don't give this guy a fucking platform. Also, that just can't be a a good part of his care. That can't be healthy for him to be interviewed by a journalist. No. And because that's just exploiting... His mental health right. and exploiting fucking Jodie Foster. Right. Mm-hmm. Because this was a huge, huge story in the mm-hmm. news. So in this interview, he said of his daily routine at the hospital that he would usually, quote, see a therapist, answer mail, because then he started getting fucking fan mail because what is our society? Right. 
play guitar, listen to music, play pool, watch television, eat lousy food, and take delicious medication. Ew. Okay. Yep. He also said that his attempt on Reagan's life had been, quote, the greatest love offering in the history of the world. So not not quite cured. Uh, nope. Still Hink- working on it. Hinckley's acquittal resulted in widespread outrage that someone could attempt to assassinate the president and be found not guilty. Mm-hmm. I feel like it doesn't matter that it was the president. Mm-hmm. To me, it was just a could have been anyone. He just happened right. to focus on the president. Mm-hmm. I feel like an assassination attempt on the president because it's of its wider implications would be, you know, taken more. Well, of course that matters. But like, I don't know. It just sets a pretty it sets more of a dangerous precedent, in my opinion, to have a slap on the wrist on for an assassination attempt on a pres- president, because then that, like, invites... That's true. ...additional attempts, you know, by other people or foreign entities, would I be just, my guess. It's like, it's like more of a national security issue. I, yeah, uh, definitely, I agree. I just feel like it minimizes, like, the other victim percent. in this, which is, like, the sexual violence towards mm-hmm. women that Jodie totally. Foster was experiencing. Both of those things are absolutely true. Right. So numerous states revised their laws pertaining to when a defendant could use the insanity defense, and Idaho, Montana, and Utah abolished the defense altogether, not that it would have fucking mattered because none of his crimes took place in those states. Uh Congress also passed the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which limited the use of the defense on a national level. And this amounted to something of a moral panic as insanity defenses were actually, like, incredibly rare And up to that point, they'd been used in less than 2% of all felony cases and were unsuccessful about 75% of the time when they were even used. Dang. So it's it's basically like fucking 1980s, man. Like Mm -hmm. it's another version of satanic panic of whipping Mm -hmm. everybody up into a craze about something that is exceedingly rare. Yeah, now it's like mental mental illness panic. Right. So in 1987, Hinckley applied for a court order that would allow him to leave the hospital to visit his parents. And as part of the process of determining his eligibility for this, like, loosening of his restrictions, they searched his room at the hospital. It was found to contain photographs and drafts of letters that indicated his continuing obsession with Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. as well as evidence that Hinckley had exchanged letters with Ted Bundy. Oh, oh my God. Swapping tips. Mm-hmm. And made attempts to find out Charles Manson's e- mailing address as well. So he wanted to, like, Yikes. correspond with, like, other freaks that he felt were on his level. Good Lord. That's really creepy. Mm-hmm. I do not like that. And thus, his request for additional privileges was denied. Mm-hmm. So it was not until 1999 that he was granted permission to occasionally leave the hospital for supervised visits with his parents. But when news broke of this, in- and like his parents were allowed to visit him. Mm-hmm. This was to let him out to visit them. Right. When the news broke of this increase in privileges, Foster, who rarely discussed the incident and had canceled several interviews and public appearances over the years if she thought that they might bring up the incident because she was like, look, I've said my piece. I'm over it. Can we fucking talk about me and my career? 
Yeah. And My not brilliance. this psycho that is obsessed with me and I have nothing right. to do with. Right. She said on Charlie Rose that, quote, I don't like to dwell on it too much. I never wanted to be the actress who was remembered for that event because it didn't have anything to do with me. I was kind of a hapless bystander. But what a scarring, strange moment in history for me to be 17 years old, 18 years old, and be caught up in a drama like that. Mm-hmm. And like, yes, exactly. Maybe you need a panic room. Mm, yep. <laughs> in 2000, St. Elizabeth's, the hospital that he was at, recommended that Hinckley be allowed unsupervised visits with his parents. So only one year into mm. him getting the supervised ones. Mm-hmm. But they soon rescinded this recommendation just one month later. I wonder why. They must have found something. Yeah, they must have. In December of 2005, a judge ruled that Hinckley should be allowed occasional visits to his parents' home in Williamsburg, Virginia, after several expert witnesses testified that his psychotic disorders were in full remission. In the ensuing years, his privileges continued to expand, and he was allowed longer and more frequent visits home. In 2011, a forensic psychologist at the hospital testified that, quote, Hinckley has recovered to the point that he poses no imminent risk of danger to himself or others. I don't know. I don't have the data. I don't know. Then in August of 2014, Reagan's press secretary, so one of the people who had been injured, like severely injured in that attack, uh, James Brady, passed away after living for 33 years with permanent disabilities as a result of that shooting. Oh, my God. He had slurred speech and partial paralysis that required the full-time use of a wheelchair after the attack. That sucks. As his death had ultimately resulted from his injuries, it was ruled a homicide. Even though it it took place 33 years later, it was Mm -hmm. still the fault of this man. Yeah. Yep. However, Hinckley was not charged because of the year and a day law that was in effect in Washington, D.C. at the time of the shooting, mm. which barred prosecution for anyone for an act that contributed to someone's death more than a year and a day after the incident, which I think is a little bit fucked up. Mm-hmm. But I guess you have yeah, to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, even if it affects, somewhere. like, the sentencing, there should still be circumstances where you could prosecute that. Yeah. I don't think that that law exists in D.C. anymore, but mm. it did... At the, At the time, and so it yeah. still applied. In 2016, Hinckley was released from St. Elizabeth's under numerous conditions, including that he lived full-time with his mother and that he was forbidden from possessing any weapons or any Jodie Foster memorabilia. Oh, oh my God. Ouch. Can't even look at a picture of the gal. <laughs> he was also forbidden from erasing his computer's browser history. Mm-hmm. Or attempting to contact Jodie Foster or any member of the Reagan or Brady families. I guess they didn't care about Jimmy Carter anymore, even though he's like (laughs) an angel. (laughs) He's like a living saint. Barely living. (laughs) Oh my God. He's still doing Habitat for Humanity. He's fine. Yeah, he's just super duper old. I'm just pointing it out. So just a couple months ago, Hinckley petitioned the court for full unconditional release and his request was granted and is set to begin in June of 2022. So very soon here in like six months, he's going to be free. Outsies. In the years since his release, he has attempted to rebrand himself as a singer songwriter. No. My God. And releases his music on a YouTube channel that I will not be sharing. Mm Mm-mm. Better than SoundCloud. Ugh. 
Foster has continued to speak very infrequently about the incident. In a 2013 interview, she summed up her overall outlook on fame and fandom thusly. Quote, if you had been a public figure from the time that you were a toddler. Yeah. If you'd had to fight for a life that felt real and honest and normal against all odds, then maybe you too might value privacy above all else. Privacy. Someday in the future, people will look back and remember how beautiful it once was. Oh, oh Jody, you see right through me. Right Jones. to the heart. Ugh. Let's look up some of her work. I love her so much. The only work that matters we is Napoleon and Samantha. Becoming obsessed with Jody. No, Foster. I'm trying to honor her career. She's Napoleon so pretty. Oh, Clarice. And Samantha. Clarice. Obviously, Clarice. Doy. What else have we got here? Uh, Contact or whatever that movie oh, is with my Matthew God. McConaughey. Yep. So good. Contact, so good. Mm. What else have we got? Nell. Uh, from the movie Nell. What are you, Nell? From the movie Nell. (laughs) Home for the Holidays, which I've never seen. Mm. Nope. Anna and the King, probably Uh, very problematic. I don't know, but Chow Yun-Fat. Oh, my God, so handsome. I love him. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's hear a quick word from our (laughs) flight play old. Yeah. <laughs> from our sponsor today, which is just Jody Foster IMDb. Gay icon. The word, yes. Quick word from our foster sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that is why it's America's number one meal kit. Listen, that affordable part, okay, it is legit. If you are like me and you love to dine out and mm-hmm. can't really think about what you want to eat until you're already hungry, yeah, then HelloFresh is your best friend because it's 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And you can save on average over $65 a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping because there's like, no waste. You're not getting, you know, a giant bundle of parsley for that little bit that you need for that one recipe. Like, it's just so smart. And that is more money to put toward those other 2022 goals of yours. Japan. And you're, I mean. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe if we can ever travel again. And you're not going to get bored with this service because HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week. Like, There are so many options Mm -hmm. and you're going to find something that suits your needs because they have veggie, they have calorie smart, they have family friendly, they have gourmet options. If you've got like a date or an anniversary coming up, you really want to like impress your partner. It provides plenty of variety. There are recipes like hibachi sweet soy bavette steak and shrimp. Hi, that's surf and turf. Restaurant quality surf and turf meal that you made in your kitchen. But then you can also get like White cheddar Wonder Burgers. That's super easy to make, and it's going to make your kids happy, and you don't have to, like, go to a fast food restaurant. I mean, it's just amazing. I recently, you know, I love a 30-minute or less meal Mm -hmm. with very few dishes, okay? That's how to do it. They have a one-pan mushroom cauliflower risotto. Mm -hmm. It has, you top it with a little Parmesan. It's cooked with just a little bit of thyme. It is 
so delicious. And one of the things I love the most about this is I'm a type one diabetic. So these like cauliflower risottos and these carb smart options that they offer. First of all, it's easier for me to track and prepare my like my insulin for my blood sugar. And I can make choices that are going to be less carbs in my cooking so that I just don't have to be like dumping insulin into my system all the time. It's seriously miraculous. I'm obsessed. Oh, yeah. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Gals16, G-A-L-S-1-6, and use code GALS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. One more time, go to HelloFresh.com slash Gals16 and use code GALS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. And treat your cooking. Treat it. Treat it. It's a new year, and who doesn't want to make some easy changes to their personal hygiene routine to make it just a little bit cleaner? I know I do. I need a lot of changes to my personal hygiene routine. (laughs) Shower more often, check. Well, and make your shower feel more luxurious because Native's aluminum-free deodorant and body washes are never made with parabens or sulfates, and they are both cruelty-free. I have long been obsessed with my native deodorant and, like, switching Mm -hmm. up the scents. Mm -hmm. But I have also now switched my body wash to native. The best. Oh, boy, I love it. My shower smells like a eucalyptus spa. Mm -hmm. It's the best. And beyond their customer favorite classic deodorant, Native also offers sensitive and plastic-free options, which I love. Mm -hmm. And the sensitive formula is made without baking soda for those who have more sensitive skin. And then the packaging for their plastic-free deodorant is made of 100% paperboard. So they are just thinking of everything here. And if you can't get enough of Native's scents, try their body wash, like I said. It's available in over eight scents, and their body washes have, like, a rich lather that leaves skin feeling moisturized and conditioned. It is so thick. Yeah. Like, you know how when you're, a you know when you're a in the way. shower? Yeah. When you're in the shower and you, like, squeeze a subpar body wash into your hand, and it's so liquidy that it immediately just goes through all the cracks in your fingers, mm-hmm. and yeah, you're like, well, that was Yeah, this doesn't do that. Pointless. It's the best. Yeah, you can literally use, like, a dime-sized amount for your whole body and it's mm-hmm. it's enough. It's amazing. And to kick off this new year, Native has partnered with Baked by Melissa, which has oh. also been a sponsor of this show. And sure they has. have a collection of scents inspired by Baked by Melissa's delicious cupcake creations. Mm-hmm. So you can choose from tie-dye vanilla cupcake, mint cookie cupcake, fresh peach cupcake, Ginger lemonade cupcake. Yum. How many times can I say cupcake? Say it again. <laughs> and these will all make your day a little sweeter. I know, Amanda, you have one that you love. Listen, every time I shower, I feel like I am stepping out of an exquisite, like, quaint Parisian bakery. <laughs> like, like walking by it and just getting a whiff. You're like, like, yeah. That's my bathroom. I am delish- delicious. You do want to take am. a bite out of me. Exactly. So this year, up your personal hygiene routine with Native. Go to nativedo.com slash winecrime20 or use promo code winecrime20 at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedo.com slash winecrime20 or use promo code winecrime20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. 
and treat your scent. Treat it. If you're thinking about making a resolution this year instead of depriving yourself, why not focus mm-hmm. on providing for yourself? I, mean, I love that. You know? Yes. It's all about self-care. With Dipsy, you can focus on giving yourself pleasure, which is a habit you'll want to keep all year round. I'm here for this resolution, and Dipsy is here to help me get there. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories, and now they even have brand new written stories. Love it. I'm obsessed with these because I do like to read in bed after someone has already fallen asleep. (laughs) So this is going to scratch a real good itch. Uh, No matter who you're into or what turns you on, Dipsy helps bring the stories to life anytime, anywhere. Just close your eyes and let yourself get lost in a world where only good things happen and pleasure is your only priority. You can explore Mm -hmm. your fantasies in a safe, shame-free way. I love that. There are hundreds of stories to choose from and they release new content every week. So there's always more to explore. You're not going to get bored. And they also have wellness sessions to help you wind down and explore and sleep sessions to help you drift off. They just have everything. I love it. So for listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash gals, G-A-L-S. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash gals, dipsystories.com slash gals, and treat your pleasure. Treat Are you ready for my case? I don't know. Does it have anything to do with Jodie Foster? It doesn't, but it's delightful. Okay. My case today is basically a love letter to Kenyon, so enjoy. I love it. (laughs) Mikhail Yurovich Lormontov. Yes! Russia! Was born in Moscow, Russia. Mother Russia, which I have no genetic connection to and have never been to. One day. On my list. In Moscow, Russia on October 15th, 1814. (laughs) Though some reports say October 3rd, which was my dad's birthday. And either way, he was a Libra. (laughs) Okay. He was born into nobility. And though his family had been in Russia for many years, his early lineage traces back to Scotland. So that (gasps) hits both Russian, you know, a Russian sweet spot and a Gallic sweet spot for you. Oh, my gosh. I'm tingling. Uh, it gets better. <laughs> you, it, she's it, sliding off her chair. I am tingling. <laughs> Slid right off. It's said that Mikhail's lineage connects him to the 13th century Scottish poet <gasps> Thomas the Rhymer. Oh. Probably the Eminem of his time. Now we've got medieval stuff and going on. And this is the third sweet spot for Kenyon. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and also our boy Mikhail was a famous poet so it's like every box (laughs) Mikhail had all the setup for being a super emo famous poet his parents basically hated each other and only stayed together because divorce in the 1800s was perhaps a bit no a big no no Mm -hmm. his father had a temper and his mother was chronically ill many speculate uh, that she was chronically ill as a direct result of the overwhelming stress and threat of violence in their home at the hands of the patriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. She died of tuberculosis at the age of 21. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
in February of 2017, almost exactly 100, or sorry, not 2017, 1817. <laughs> I'm fine. She lived almost a long life. Long time. Almost exactly 100 years before Helen was born. <laughs> After she died, her husband, Yuri, left to join his five sisters at a family estate many miles away, but his mother-in-law threatened to disown the family from their inheritances. She was extraordinarily wealthy. If he took her sweet grandson, Mikhail, with him. Mm. So she wanted Mikhail to stay. Okay. So Yuri handed Mikhail over to his grandmother because he's like, I'm not getting cut out of the family will. Yeah, yeah, here, take him. So here, take him. And she raised him wanting for nothing. Mm. In her care, he was intentionally kept sequestered from his father so that Yuri wouldn't return to raise him himself. And she spoiled and surrounded Mikhail with luxury. This doesn't sound like a healthy upbringing. It's soups totes not. <laughs> this coupled with the perfect undercurrent of a lasting family feud with the disgraced Yuri was the inspiration for Mikhail's early work, Menschen und Leidenschaften. Oh. Which translates to men and passions. Oh. That stars a leading man written in Mikhail's image. He was provided with the best schooling available, was fluent in French and German and Russian, obviously, played multiple instruments, and was a talented painter. Though he came from a legacy military family on his father's side, Mikhail was a sickly child suffering from rickets. Ooh. And rickets. Scro- scrofula. Oh. Count scrofula. The which is fuck an, is that? It's an infection of the lymph nodes in the neck that leads to like massively unsightly and painful blisters. Ooh, boobos. It was also referred to as, quote, the king's evil in the 17th century <laughs> because of old wives' tales that bad blood coagulated in your thyroid and lymph nodes causing phlegm and an imbalance of the bodily humors, which many believed could only be cured by being touched by a member of the royal family. Okay. Okay, so it's related to, to, to tuberculosis, so he probably it got be. it from his mom. Yeah, it, it's oftentimes related to TB, but you can get it without it. It's like a bacterial, like a lymph bacteria. It's bizarre. Weird. Anyway, he was kind of like the kid in the secret garden, and as a result of his <laughs> poor health... Anyway, ice bath, ice bath. It? Yes. Uh, And as a result of his poor health, he followed artistic pursuits rather than military ones as a kiddo. Mm -hmm. At 14 years old, Mikhail was accepted into Moscow University's boarding school for boys, where he fell deeply in love with books and read everything he could get his hands on, which at this school was a whole hell of a lot because they had a massive library at their disposal. His love of reading turned into a skill for editing, and he took on a student editor role for, like, the school's student journal. A schoolgirl rejection inspired him to write one of his early poems entitled Nishi, Nishi, which translates to The Beggar, which is a pretty petty poem, and I will read it to you. How do you like me now? Yeah, it's like (laughs) sort of some incel shit where he compares himself to a dude who is poor and begging for food to live, and basically how her shooting him down for a date is like as abhorrent and deadly as refusing someone food and water who is starving. Here's the poem. (laughs) By gates of an abode blessed, a man stood asking for donation. A beggar, cruelly oppressed by hunger, thirst, and deprivation. (laughs) He asked just for a piece of bread, and all his looks were full of anguish, and was a cold stone laid into his stretched arm, thin and languished. (laughs) Thus I prayed vainly for your love, 
With bitter tears, pine, and fervor, thus my best senses that have thrived were victimized by you forever. So both of our cases have really (laughs) pathetic dudes writing shitty poetry because they happen to like a girl that doesn't like them back. Pretty much. love that poem. And your reading of it. Mm -hmm. I like blessed and oppressed. Anyway, he published a fuck ton of poems at a young age. And when he went to Moscow University in the 1830s, he was pretty well known, but also pretty unliked by his fellow students and faculty. Shocker. Because he was a total asshole. (laughs) And I didn't include this, but he did eventually get kicked out of this university for like yelling that he knew more than one of his professors. And his professor was like, fuck you, get out of my classes. And then I think the whole school was just like, you're a pain in the ass. (laughs) So this is a quote from Wikipedia. Quote. Along with his poetic skills, Lermontov developed an inclination towards poisonous wit and cruel sardonic humor. Mm. His ability to draw caricatures, like actual drawings, was matched only by his ability to pin someone down with a well-aimed epigram. Oh, no. (laughs) Yep. He was rejected from prominent student clubs at university because of his, quote, petty arrogance and tried to fall in with, like, the painting and poetry goths, but even they were not super into him. Oh, that's, that's not a good sign. <laughs> and no. he's been denied nothing and raised by his grandma. Exactly. Oh, no. One of his fel- fellow students said of him, quote, everyone could see that Lermontov was obnoxious, rough, and daring, and yet there was something alluring in his firm moroseness. Mm. So, no. yeah, I probably would have tried to date him. Oh, yeah. You and you had a phase where you would have absolutely dated. What was it? His petty arrogance? Yeah. yeah. Although he did have a hunchback, which might have been a, a bit of a turnoff. Oh, you know, I, I don't he know. He was sickly. That's, that's he the one part about him that I think kind of like. fine. I, I mean, mean, it's <laughs> totally fine. His personality is the problem. It, yeah. Dude's a mess. I love it. With all of this schooling and esteem under his belt, he tried to enroll in advanced coursework at St. Petersburg University, but was rejected, which was actually super common. It was like impossible to get in at this time. So instead, he tried following the patriarchal family legacy of a military career, enrolling in the prestigious School of Cavalry Junkers. (laughs) I don't know. And in sign of the guard, I don't know, LOL Junkers. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I literally wrote LOL Junkers in my notes. Got some Junkers in the Trunkers. Yeah. Uh, and upon graduation, he joined the Lifeguard Hussar Regiment in 1832. Nothing While training- to do with swimming. No. While training as a cadet, he formed a bond with a classmate named Nikolai Martinov, who certainly revered Mikhail. Nikolai wrote in his journal about how Mikhail was, quote, the young man who was so far ahead of everybody else as to be beyond comparison. Mm. A real grown-up who'd read and thought and understood a lot about human nature. Oh, no. It's now, not, this, it, this is reminding me of Eastbound and Down. Oh. Like, he's Kenny Powers, and now he has found his, <laughs> his little friend who's obsessed oh. with him and thinks he's, like, amazing, but he's yeah. still Kenny Powers. Sure. And this isn't confirmed or corroborated in any way, but this really reads like a crush to me. Mm-hmm. Like you're writing in your journal uh-huh. about how grown up, a real grown up this guy is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Waxing poetic. 
Yeah. So Mikhail was not cut out for a military lifestyle. I mean, be from being sick like his entire childhood and never yeah. having to like move. Pretty he hard was, to like. He was disabled. Like he actually was. It's, yeah. And while he was in the in uh, like cadet training, he couldn't get his hands on books, and so he had like no outlet for anything he loved. So instead, he had to spend his free time fitting in by, or at least trying to fit in by engaging in physical competitions and often got hurt. Once he fell off a horse during one of these activities and fucked his knee up so badly he could never walk normally again. Oh, oh my no. God. Yeah. So his method of survival was self and self-soothing was to be deeply cynical and just sick his straight up cruel wit on his fellow cadets. I which mean, like, it works. It works. I get it. <laughs> but it didn't leave him with a lot of friends. He fucking hated being a military guy and longed for his lavish lifestyle. He wrote a letter to a cousin in 1833 with a line that read, quote, the time of my dreams has passed. The time for believing is long gone. Okay. Now I want material pleasures, happiness that I can touch, happiness that can be bought with gold, <laughs> that one can carry it in one's pocket as a snuff box. Happiness that beguiles only my senses while leaving my soul in peace and quiet. Such I a drama king. Hate I, him. I love him, and I mean, same. I want all of these things. So when he left military school and joined the lifeguard, he was stationed in St. Petersburg, and Grandma made sure that he was hooked the fuck up. Mm hmm. He got an apartment with a friend and like she provided personal chefs, coachmen to drive him around in a private carriage. Oh my God. He fit right in with St. Petersburg High Society and he loved to soak up all the drama and the gossip. Yeah, probably way better than like marching in the cold and falling yeah. off horses. Precisely. I'd prefer so he, that too. Samers. <laughs> he was described at that time as, quote, sardonic, caustic, and smart, brilliantly intelligent, rich, and independent. He became the soul of the high society and the leading spirit in pleasure trips and sprees. It was also noted, quote, extraordinary how much youthful energy and precious time had Lermontov managed to spare upon wanton orgies and base lovemaking oh. without seriously <laughs> damaging his physical and moral strength. Okay. <laughs> Love him. He used this time not just to gallivant, but wrote some scathing criticisms about aristocratic life in both poetry and in the form of a play called Masquerade or Masquerade. Cool. But his life was turned upside down when in 1837, an idol and inspiration of his, the poet Alexander Pushkin, was killed in a duel. He went all the way the fuck off and published Death of a Poet, which scathingly criticized the aristocracy for basically allowing this to happen and held them responsible for Pushkin's death. And these sentiments got his ass arrested and exiled because... You know, the higher ups in the royal. Yeah, they don't want to hear they it. Don't, yeah, they were not having it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear it. And no, I don't know. No, no. <laughs> but Mikhail thrived in exile, traveling, <laughs> meeting other great and accomplished writers and poets, but was able to return a year later because his rich grandma pulled some strings and another famous Russian poet vouched for him. So he returned to St. Petersburg after one year of exile in 1838. And his works were once again published in newspapers, launching his poetry career into the mainstream with his romantic poetry. 
He was being referred to as Pushkin's successor and revered for the political statements against the aristocracy that sent him into exile. So he was like St. Petersburg resident bad boy. (laughs) Okay. Mm. Ladies were flashing ankle at this dude left (laughs) and right. Okay. (laughs) He was solidifying his spot as a Russian literary legend, but he was quickly getting bored of his fame and high status. This incredible quote from Alexandra. Right, seriously. <laughs> this woman, Alexandra Smirova, she was a prominent socialite and attendant to a member of the royal court, said, quote, What an extravagant man he is. Looks like he's heading for the imminent catastrophe. Insolent to a fault, dying of boredom, getting vexed by his own frivolousness, but having no will to break free from these surroundings. A strange kind of man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was heading toward imminent catastrophe. So while out at a salon one night and soaking up all the attention of the ladies there, he got into a kerfuffle with the son of the French ambassador at the time who challenged him to a duel. Ooh, that's how while a hero this, died. Be careful. It is. I know. Be careful. While this duel only resulted in minor injury, Mikhail wound up once again arrested and was sentenced to yet another exile this time to a military regiment that was preparing for like a very dangerous battle. So they knew they were like, send him here. He'll just die at war. And then we don't have to fucking deal with this guy ever again. He's driving us nuts. It'll take care of itself. But clever intervention by rich grandma and Must Mikhail. Be fucking nice. I know. Yeah. And Mikhail claiming to have fallen ill. Okay. Kept him from seeing battle. So instead of going all the way to the base camp that was expecting him, he stayed in the town of Piatigorsk. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> for treatment of his illness. While in town, he hobnobbed with the locals and went on an absolute writing spree. Hmm. He would awaken early to write all day and then head out to the salons to unwind at night. He reconnected with his former schoolmate, Nikolai Martinov, the one who I think had a crush on him. Yep. Nikolai had been following Mikhail's career and would even show up at these social events in the evenings. He lived in this town mm-hmm. and he would show up literally cosplaying characters from Mikhail's plays and poems, like oh. in full costumes that he had put together himself. Oh no. Lord. And then his penis became engorsked. Engorsked. <laughs> engorsked. Mikhail, being the absolute douche canoe that he was, made fun of Nikolai relentlessly for these costumes. Night after night, Nikolai would show up hoping to impress his idol only to be mocked over and over again until he finally snapped. Nikolai challenged Mikhail to a duel and Mikhail accepted. On July 27th, 1841, the two met at the foot of Mashuk Mountain. Though Mikhail wasn't really taking this super seriously and made it known that he was simply going to shoot his right, like pistol round up in the air, Nikolai aimed for the heart and opened fire, killing Mikhail where he stood. Oh. An almost poetic end that his own idol Pushkin had seen just a few years prior. Mm-hmm. He was buried without military honors, but thousands gathered to pay their respects to this literary giant, and he was only... 26 years old when he died. Exiled twice. Oh my God, all of that? He was only 26? He was already like super like jaded and over everything. My God. Can you believe In and out of the military. Who has the time? Not me. So what happened to Nikolai? 
I assume he was arrested and exiled or thrown in jail or maybe like he didn't have made, a rich grandma made some sort of king for getting rid of this like obnoxious dude that the aristocracy was tired of dealing with. Yeah, it sounds like there were a couple groups of people who were probably like, yeah, you did mm-hmm. good. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure he probably had some commendations and a pretty lenient sentence would be my guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's my case. I love it. So crazy. I love all of the different elements. We really went in all kinds of different directions today. And I appreciate that. Yes. Well, thank you very much to our fan picker. Uh, Our fangirl. Our fangirl. Our fan person. Thank you, Brooke. Thank Thank you you so much. Babbling, Brooke. Oh, never a Borman or whatever my joke was. Never a Borman. We'll see you next week. We love you. Oh, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers! Cheers!